from K2L, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director, Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, snow is on the ground in Jackson and the winter season is just around the corner. We talked to a filmmaker about the art of capturing epic snowboarding videos in the backcountry. In filmmaking and in a video part, there's so many different obstacles you can play with. It could be a handrail, it could be an urban rail, it could be a wall ride, it could be a powder turn, a spine in Alaska. And also, Yellowstone National Park is one step closer to a new bison management plan. It's going to be one of those plans that likely not everybody's going to be pleased. Not everybody's going to be satisfied. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for tuning in. Two Jackson political figures with different stances on local issues recently got together for a public one-on-one conversation. Former Mayor Pete Muldoon and current town council member Jim Rooks. The two were in a contentious race for town council in 2020, which Rooks won. Things were said online and the two haven't spoken since. But they recently sat down in front of an audience at Jackson's Center for the Arts as part of KHOL's One Small Step program. We've been collaborating with StoryCorps to bring community members with different beliefs and backgrounds to talk and discover common ground. We're recording the conversations that will live on in the Library of Congress. Muldoon and Rooks talked for about half an hour in front of about 70 people. They discussed why they got into politics, their experiences during the election, and shared how they want to be remembered for their public service. Here's a portion of their discussion, which has been edited for time and clarity, beginning with Rooks sharing a memory from 2020. When I was being sworn in uh, to become a town counselor and you were on the way out as the mayor, I didn't, this is embarrassing to me, it's like so petty, I didn't clap for you, right? I didn't recognize just the fact that regardless of our different political ideologies and thoughts and whatever, that I didn't honor your service. And I regret that as well. So what I want you to know about me is that I do honor your service. I do. And I I recognize you a man of incredible intelligence, incredible skill set, including a love for old country music. And um, I just want you to know that I don't harbor any like ill will and I hope you forgive me from you know, my trespasses. And I hope that we can, you know, there, there was a time that I would have described us as friends. We had, we had we're friends because like Jackson friends because we have so many common friends that by definition we're friends, right? <laughs> and so I would, I would meet Pete, you know, I think I, was, I think I was really early on in your Jackson history as far as Maddie Combs' backyard. Yeah, yeah. I think you lived there in a camper, um, which is, <laughs> Or chip. maybe, oh, that was Chip. That was, a, that was, another, that was another 30 friends of mine. And, um, but, you know, just hoping that this can be the start of just, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on a multitude of different things having to do with this community moving forward. I specifically appreciated your stance on climate change and housing. And I'd like to talk with you more and learn, learn from you about that. I'm happy to anytime. And then what do you want me to know about you? Well, I, I, there's, I guess 
after four years of being mayor, there's not a whole lot, especially you probably, you probably ran an ops campaign. <laughs> no, no, all my bad, all my dirty secrets. Everything. No, I, I would say the one thing that I, right now, having, having had this conversation that I would say is that, you know, I ran a, a campaign in 2016, and um, that was a nasty, it's just as nasty a campaign. There were people who were acting as surrogates for me, and I'm not going to say who they were, but there were, there was a lot of stuff going on. And there were things that I thought of uh, former elected officials, and, and maybe one in particular, that I thought them in good faith, but they were not true. And my understanding of how the system worked, um, having, like yourself, not, being, not been inside it, not seen how it was done, was wrong, frankly. And I regret, and I have said this before, um, but I think in this context it's important. I, I regret things that I said, and I regret, regret things that I did during that campaign. Doesn't matter if they were done in good faith or not, right? They're, it's, it's something to, you know, I don't know how we kind of escape from that because we're, you know, we want people to feel empowered to run for public office, and yet they've never done it. And there's no roadmap for doing it. You know as well as I do how much stress it can be to run a campaign. You're, in, you're, you're under the microscope every moment. You're in the public eye. You're going from here to there. You're constantly having to think on your feet. And I don't know that there's a solution to that other than looking back and saying, I wouldn't do that again, right? Yeah. Which I can do and, and you can do too now, right? Yeah. But, but I, I guess what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that I, I understand. I get it. Hmm. You know, I understand how, how something like that can happen and how we can get caught up in the moment and do things we would not otherwise do, and that's, that's the nature of the beast. So I don't hold grudges over things like that, and um, I, think it's, I think it's important that somebody else is gonna run a campaign <laughs> next yeah. year, and they're, they're gonna be somebody who's never been in a campaign before, has never, or, or has, but hasn't actually been in office and seen how things work, and they're gonna do the same things, and we ought to have, in our own hearts, that same kind of understanding for what they're going through. How do you want to be remembered for your public service? Well, uh, I'm, a, I'm a hard worker, uh, so I guess, and the two, I guess the two things I would say I'd want to be remembered for is I, I showed up for, for everything, I, and, and I, I just, just as a, like a blue-collar guy, I, just, I think I missed one meeting in four years, and, um, and I, I, I did I, a lot of it, as you know, is not that fun. Like, <laughs> you sit through, like, how many budget meetings do you have to sit through and you're just like, oh, my God, shoot me, you know? Um, so... <laughs> That was uh, that was hard. You're 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 in it now. You know, like some of these are not that. You know, you, you get in there, and you're like, I'm going to change the world. And I'm going to do all this thing. But first, we've got to count plant units at a development. You know, you're like, uh, you know, I want to be remembered for that. But I'd say mostly on top of that, that I I I made mistakes, and uh, but I always did everything. Everything I did, I. I truly believe what I was doing for the best of the community. I believe you're doing that too. Like I think, I think I, and I think most most elected officials do that. And I, you know, I don't think there are people out there, especially at this level, who are trying to game things for themselves. You know, there's a perception I think among certain people in the community. I certainly heard it from people that, oh, you're getting in it to, to get rich. I was, I was kind of laughing at you earlier. You're like, oh I needed a job. I'm like, that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I always put the community first in all of the decisions, and, and that was not a difficult thing to do. It's just, and I, I, I've, I've 
seen and read enough about what you've done to know that you're doing the same thing, and I, I appreciate that. And I, I think I think that more than anything is what all elected officials. And now I'm going to. I think I have to ask you the same question, so I shouldn't yeah. be trying to put that in your those words in your mouth. But um, how do you want to be remembered for your public service, Jim? <laughs> well, I'm wearing my dad's bolo tie, Jim Rooks, and so he was. This question, I, I looked at it, and I'm like, you know. I don't know anybody who's trying to establish a legacy at local level <laughs> politics, right? There's, there ain't no libraries coming, right? And so um, my old man, before he passed away, we're asking him some of these questions. We're interviewing him, right? And he says his goal in life was when people bring up his name, he wanted everyone to say, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> and so... I've, I've held on to that, right? Which is like, I mean, if you're trying to do something beyond, you know, that, I think that was his point, is just being humble and just being a servant of the community. The one thing I thought I could say is that I pride myself on being, like, approachable and responsive. Like, if, if we look at state-level government and federal-level government, if you're waiting for the callback, it's almost never going to happen, right? <laughs> Uh, and so at least I want to be remembered as someone like, like I always pick up the phone, I respond. My colleagues said I was crazy early on saying there's no way you're going to keep up with that volume of contacts. But I really do genuinely try to just reply to the email, reply. My rule is if, if you offend me in the first sentence and you know, insult me, I'm probably not going to call you back. But I, I do want to be remembered as like a, a true delegate, you know, right. this democratic system based on not just sure. me or what I think, but right. just being open and responsive to what yeah. people communicate to me. But there's a lot in the inbox, isn't there? <laughs> a lot, yeah. And as far as getting rich, oh my God, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I don't know what I do like no people to know, because it's this common thing. I don't know if it's from the trickle down from the national level, but you know, 35 grand a year, right? I'm pretty sure was the lowest earning hourly wage earner in my family this last summer. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I have two teenage kids. You should right? run for the cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I missed that memo about how to get rich in politics. Should have run for the county commission, yeah. Jim. Yeah. <laughs> We're out of time, unfortunately, but I okay. offer you one more question. What's something you'd like to take away from this experience? Just this. It would be the nonverbal for me. Like, I had a chance to talk with you before. Um, that I appreciate your willingness to be here. For me, it's, it's purely like personal. For me, it's one more chance to be in front of the people with a microphone. <laughs> uh, no, it, honestly, it's just, uh, I've, I've enjoyed this. I, it's good to clear the air and, and, and know where we stand here after, you know, it's been three years. I appreciate you being willing to sit down with me and I'll, I'll take that away with, as a good thing. Thank you. Thank you. Jackson Town Councilmember Jim Rooks and former Mayor Pete Muldoon, who recently sat down together for a public one-on-one -on -one discussion as part of KHOL's One Small Step series in collaboration with StoryCorps. We're bringing together locals who have different beliefs and backgrounds to talk and discover common ground. To learn more or participate, visit 891KHOL.org. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger-Teton National Forest. 
not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Tyler Pratt. Bison management in Yellowstone National Park has long been a source of conversation, conflict, and collaboration. And the park is starting to look at updating the way it manages the mammal. In August of this year, the Park Service released a draft of its environmental impact statement for its future plan for bison in the park. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman has more about what might be next for the iconic species. At the south end of Hayden Valley, about 20 broad-shouldered bison soak in the warmth of thermal vents next to the Yellowstone River. People are gathered on the other side of the river, taking a look. I'm Shirley Schaller. I'm from Boulder, Colorado, and my husband and I have been doing a little bit of a road trip from Seattle to visit family, and coming back, we wanted to come through Yellowstone. Schaller has a big telephoto lens camera in her hands. She says seeing the bison is a real treat. You know, you look at the way United States used to be hundreds of years ago. This is just a pittance of what was here. It's nice to see the herd growing. Currently, the population is about 4,800. The size of the bison herd in Yellowstone and how to maintain that number has been the source of a lot of debate over the years. This August, the National Park Service released the draft of their environmental impact statement for how to manage this shaggy creature within the park boundaries. The 137-page plan outlines three paths forward. This conversation is really about population size. That's Yellowstone Superintendent Cam Shawley. He says it's about striking a balance between maintaining progress that we've made over the last two decades and also setting ourselves up for continued progress in the future. All the plans have a common denominator, 3,500, which Shawley says is the minimum herd size necessary to protect the genetic diversity of the bison population. Alternative 1 maintains the current status quo with an upper limit of 5,000. Alternative 2 bumps that top number to 6,000, and Alternative 3 sets the ceiling at 7,000. It's going to be one of those plans that likely not everybody's going to be pleased. Not everybody's going to be satisfied. But the three plans have a lot in common. They all involve continuing to work with Montana, coordinating with tribes to support treaty hunting rights, expanding the bison conservation transfer program, and maintaining genetic diversity. And they're all related to the fact that bison don't think about borders and migrate throughout the season. They often leave parkland and winter in Montana. Shawley says the agency has put more money into bison management on the Montana border than any other agency involved. Everything we do in this park affects outside the park, and many things that happen outside the park affect inside the park. We can't ignore that fact. Even so, the Park Service has no direct control of managing outside of their borders. And the state of Montana is super concerned about the transmission of brucellosis from wild bison to cattle. But Shawley says the park has been doing its job managing brucellosis at the boundary. And the numbers don't lie. We still don't have a documented case of brucellosis. 
Montana State veterinarian Tawny Shemansky says that statistic is a reflection of the work of the different agencies involved, especially the Montana Department of Livestock. The reason that there have been no transmissions is because of the tremendous amount of work that's done at the local landscape. Despite that, narratives about bison spreading brucellosis to cattle have seeped into pop culture. In season five of the TV show Yellowstone, the Dutton family is forced to move half of their cattle to Texas after an outbreak of the disease from a bison transmission. But the plot twist is based on fiction, not fact. Shally says it's important to remember that cattle first passed the disease to bison more than 100 years ago. If you want to talk about brucellosis risk, I would argue that that risk where there's already been significant numbers of, of elk that have transmitted to cattle, that that's probably uh, something out for, for others to focus on. Montana State Vet Shemansky says agencies like the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and the USGS are looking into ways to stop transmission between elk and livestock. It obviously is not to the extent that it is done in bison. We're not able to categorically maintain spatial and temporal separation between elk and livestock. Still, some want to see more bison roaming the landscape like elk do. Dallas Gudgel is with the Buffalo Field Campaign and is Dakota from the Fort Peck Reservation. He says that would help restore the ecosystem and support tribal food sovereignty. Gudgel says he wants to see bison on the 8 million acres of federal land around the park, too. Like elk, like deer, they should be able to roam free on all of that 10 million acres of public land. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to involve tribes and involve tribes in a leadership style. In that vein, the Buffalo Field Campaign has invited 29 tribes to meet in Idaho to discuss tribal co-management of bison in and around the park in November. The final environmental impact statement for Yellowstone's management plan will be released next summer. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah Haberman. You're listening to Jackson Impact. It all began with a photograph of water. Manipulating a camera has always come naturally to action sports pioneer Mike Hatchett. A photo of a drinking fountain earned him an A-plus in junior high school. In the years since, Hatchett has been documenting snowboarding culture on film. For three decades, he shot countless first descents in the backcountry and captured the growing popularity of the sport. He's released more than a dozen movies via his own production company. In his latest, Flying High Again, Hatchet teams up with longtime collaborators, Jackson's own Teton Gravity Research, for a film that features an all-star cast of writers. KHOL music director and avid snowboarder Jack Catlin recently connected with Hatchet about his work and how he got his start while he was rock climbing in Lake Tahoe. We got to Alaska, snowed about five feet right when we got there and cleared up for 10 days with no wind, totally stable avalanche conditions, and you could basically ride anything you wanted. It was kind of a combination of just perfect conditions and then Johan just unleashing his talent on those mountains. And at that point, too, with Alaska, people were exploring and starting to go further and further out. But we really started pushing further out past the books into the Schwann Glacier and really going towards the Copper River and Valdez and other areas and really starting to find some really nice features to film and ride. And we were getting more comfortable with the way the whole filming scenario would go. Like, we're going to shoot this in the evening. The camera's going to go here. We're going to take the doors off the heli and shoot it this time. And we just started getting better at what we were doing. And along with the conditions, 
And then also, yeah, I got to mention Noah Selaznik, basically just skateboarding down big mountain peaks in Alaska. I don't think many people really seen that type of riding yet with that skill set. Yeah, it was just a combination of all the right elements coming together. I love this about that movie as well. Is That's when you first met Todd and Steve Jones of Teton Gravity Research. Can you tell us about that TGR relationship and why it's so important to you? I first met Todd and Steve when we were filming TB5 in Alaska, and they were our guides. They worked for Doug Coombs, and we just had an instant connection. We, we you know that we had that epic 10-day run of just perfect powder and filming conditions, and we were just all having an amazing time out there in the mountains. Yeah, we just had an instant friendship and connection, just loved those guys' vibe and everything about them I liked. And um, as the years went on, it, I think it was the next year. Yeah, the next year they, they formed TGR and they asked me some questions about filmmaking. They're like, we're going to make a movie. Can you help us out a little bit with, you know, and so I showed those guys how to load 16 millimeter in their cameras and then gave them some other pointers that I, you know, normally wouldn't have just given other people. But since I like those guys so much and since they were a ski film company, I, I didn't feel threatened by those guys as far as competition. I gave them a lot of advice early on on just the business side of filmmaking because it can be pretty cutthroat mm -hmm. and it's a tricky, you know, back then it was, it wasn't, there was really no, you know, Warren Miller was making movies and stump, but there was really not much of a framework of how things were getting done. How do you license music? How do you distribution? How do you even print a box cover? How do you ship the stuff? So I, I helped him out a lot with just my experience, what I had learned in snowboarding. And then as the years went on, our relationship just grew stronger and stronger. And it got to the point where Doug Coombs was guiding us in Alaska every year. And I would film most all of Doug's footage for the TGR ski movies. And I would just give it to, to TGR. And in return, they would film a lot of Jeremy Jones' Big Mountain stuff and give it to Standard Films. So no money was ever exchanged. We just basically traded footage for years. And that was always a great deal. And we just, yeah, our friendship just grew past that. And I ended up directing a show for those guys called Locals. We did five seasons of that show. After I stopped making snowboard movies, I started working for TGR as a director. And then I uh, did those five seasons of Locals. And then that led to the snowboard film this year, Flying High Again. So I read that you hadn't made a snowboarding film for almost 10 years before starting this film, Flying High Again. What was the draw for you to get back in the director chair? And can you tell us about the film and what went into making it? I love the mountains and I love filmmaking and knowing that that's out there to have a chance to get back out in the mountains and even Alaska in the back of my mind. If I do this movie, maybe I can go, go back to Alaska and get in the heli again. And so all the obvious things, you know, Bluebird, Powder Days and getting to film and just the whole process of film. I love the process of filmmaking from start to finish, the pre-production side, just calling the writers and, and filming all the footage and picking the music and figuring out the artwork and the finished product and marketing the finished product. I, I just love the whole process. I've just always loved it. I like the challenge. So that was the draw for me was just to get back and do something more exciting than what I've been doing, you know? For me, making a snowboard video is kind of the pinnacle of my life as far as my work, as far as a day job. So that's just for me was the draw to get back into what I really love doing. As far as this year went, I think we didn't start the movie till March. As you know, we had an amazing winter in Tahoe, an amazing winter in Jackson Hole, amazing winter in Utah, and just all the pieces really came together. We just worked really hard for a few months, and the snow conditions were amazing, and it was just kind of working double shifts. It was just kind of nonstop from March 1st until we finished editing the movie in the middle of September. It was kind of nonstop. 
It was mm-hmm. just filming all day during the winter and then on the phone at night, making calls to try and secure some extra footage from some people that contributed footage, you know, Auntie Atu with his Arctic lines contributed footage, Jones snowboards contributed footage, you know, Brandon Davis. It was just a lot of networking that went down to make it happen. But, you know, I talked to John Jackson early on and, you know, he just reminded me it's just all about work. You know, you just got to put one foot in front of the other and just start the process. And if you work hard, keep your head down and keep focused on the goal, you're, you're going to do it. You know, there was moments where I was letting the, the noise in the side of my head tell me not to do it or doubts, even by people, doubters and me doubting myself. And then, to, but just putting your head down and staying focused. That's what led to the success of the movie too. And Jeremy Jones was funny early on. He's like, Mike, just because we had this moment where you were almost not going to do the movie. And then Jeremy Jones, is like Mike just jump off the cliff you've done it before you can do this and it was kind of that moment when he said that to me it really was what kind of pushed me over the edge literally you've said that nothing is more legit in snowboarding than a banger video part that's the ultimate when it comes to snowboarding can you expand on that for us it's the ultimate test of someone's skill a banger video part like contests are great what they are a half pipe contest and a slope style contest. And then that stuff has come a long way and I respect it, but you practice your run over and over again. It's like a rehearsed thing where you go and you put on your show, you learn your tricks, you go through it, you know exactly what trick you're going to do. You pretty much know exactly how big the jump is, how much speed to take it with. It's like a rehearsed thing, which is great. But in filmmaking and in a video part, there's so many different obstacles you can play with. It could be a handrail. It could be an urban rail. It could be a wall ride. It could be a log ride in the backcountry. It could be a, a step-down feature you do a trick off of. It could be a powder turn, a spine in Alaska. There's just so many variations that you can play with as a rider. And I just think it truly tests someone's skill to pick apart terrain all winter and boil it down to one part. You can't hide when you do that. You might be a contest rider that only can really ride contests and maybe doesn't have the greatest style, but a video part, you really can see someone's style. You've got to have good style. You've got to have a big bag of tricks if you're doing freestyle stuff. To me, it just truly shows, can the guy only spin front side? Can he spin switch back side? Can he only do cab nines? Can he do a switch back nine? Can he do a front nine? Can he do a back 10? Like how big is your bag of tricks really? Can you do a styly floaty front three off a cliff and land it in fresh powder first track and not put your hand down? Huge test of skill. You know, even just a straight air, you need to land stuff fresh in the powder and, and not, again, style, not flapping. And then also what's your personality like? on film are you fun to watch are you do you have a cool personality or do you resonate to the public all that it's like this big package to me there's superstars these guys that have been putting up these video parts it's just a whole certain thing i feel like i had more respect 15 years ago and i feel like we've kind of lost that a little bit and i'd like to see the come back more and people realize how tough it is to do this stuff and how much skill it takes filmmaker mike hatchett talking with khol's music director Jack Catlin about his long history collaborating with Teton Gravity Research and the new film, Flying High Again. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is K2L Jackson. Jackson.